This morning we're going to be taking a look at the Apostle Paul uh, and specifically through the example of the Philippian Ecclesia uh, and, and his thoughts there. Because Paul to me served... I don't have much space for my Bible in the talk here. Um, Paul to me served as a great example of living a life in isolation and yet still being able to maintain that connection and the integrity of his faith and to the brotherhood whilst he was there. Paul lived almost an enviable life out of isolation. It was a life full of travel uh, and a life of preaching, aside from every bit of hardship, of course, that he faced. But when he was forced into isolation under house arrest, he kept his relationship alive with the believers and the followers at that stage. And he maintained his own integrity in Christ whilst he was there. His character remained unchanged during this time. And what I love about the Philippians is that they're an ecclesia that did the same when Paul was absent from them. We could look at any of his letters to know that Paul maintained his love of Christ during this time. But today we're going to look at the Philippians as well in particular and the example that they set. Because I think there is some good lessons in there that we can take out for our for ourselves uh, and apply to our own lives as well as being encouraging uh, example for us. So when we read through the letters to the Ecclesias and we come to the Philippians, it's almost a breath of fresh air. It's a letter that's written very differently to some of the other letters that Paul wrote out. As amongst all this trouble and turbulence that was going on through all the Ecclesias during this stage and the growth pains that these Ecclesias were experiencing as they took on more people and more members, the Philippians are commended for maintaining the course and they kept the faith during this time. A lot of other Ecclesias struggled and battled during these tough times and during Paul's imprisonment, but the Philippians seemed to thrive and we'll hopefully see why today. Well, let's have a little background context on the Philippian Ecclesia, just really quickly, because it sets the tone and the context for what we read in Philippians chapter 1. Because we're going to see how the background to the Ecclesia and the context behind Paul's letters really makes the content seem more relevant and opens up the meaning in these letters for us. So Acts chapter 16 is the foundation of the Ecclesia. It's literally how the Ecclesia was started and where the Ecclesia came from. It's Paul's second missionary journey, and it's the first time that the gospel is about to go into Europe. Paul meets Timothy in Lystra, as we can see, um, just north there of Syria, or, or north um, west, or northeast actually, no west, it is west, northwest. Um, he meets Timothy there as he's preaching, and verse 5 of Acts 16 tells us that the ecclesias in the cities were established in the faith and increased in number daily. And so Paul travels up the, up the coast across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, uh, and travels across uh, that little river there, or that sea, and across into Europe, into Philippi, which we can see is just off the coast of the Aegean Sea in what is modern-day Greece today. Now, it tells us in Acts chapter 16, verse 4, that Paul passed on to the ecclesias the decrees from the elders and the apostles which were in Jerusalem. So he was preaching to these ecclesias the decrees from the elders and the apostles at the Jerusalem ecclesia. 
And this is following on from the Jerusalem conference in AD 50. He took those decrees and he preached them to those ecclesias that he came across. So just tuck that little bit of information in now because we'll come, we'll come back to that later. So Paul and Silas and presumably Timothy head to Macedonia to preach the word. And they come to Philippi in Macedonia, which is called the chief city of that place, which means that it was sort of the capital city of that province or that state. Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a Roman city. And it was known for being a pretty wealthy uh, and a fairly influential place in Macedonia. And it was because it was a place where a lot of soldiers uh, and generals from the Roman army retired to. And, that, and that's very much recorded in historical records uh, as well, uh, and specifically noted in those types of places. So it was a very Roman place. Uh, a lot of commentators will point out that Paul didn't go into the synagogue here in Philippi, and one of the reasons is because there probably wasn't one. So there probably wasn't too many Jews here, or maybe uh, none at all, but I, I doubt that. Um, there was probably very few Jews here. Um, some people say that the book of the Philippians doesn't directly quote from the Old Testament because it was a Roman ecclesia and not many Jews. And we certainly know that Paul made lots of allusions to the Old Testament and references there, um, but perhaps no direct quotes. Well, it is here in Philippi that they meet Lydia, who is the seller of purple, and they baptize her and her household. And effectively, with that created the ecclesia of Philippi right there and then. So it could have been one of the first ecclesias that Paul establishes. They then continue preaching and they heal a sick girl, uh, which, which frankly annoys the girl's owners who make money off the sick girl uh, from her prophesying um, from her condition. And so with the girl's owners annoyed at her, uh, they go and report it to the elders uh, or the, the town's council or leaders, uh, and Paul and Silas are thrown in prison. They're thrown in prison for disturbing the peace. And afterwards, as we know, a massive earthquake occurs. They preach to the jailer. And now he and his household are baptized and join the ecclesia with Lydia's household and the formerly sick girl. Brother John Martin suggests that also the fellow prisoners in the jail were added to the ecclesia as well. He suggests that upon hearing Paul and Silas singing uh, in their prison, that the Greek word for hearing used in those verses meant that they were actively listening. Uh, and then their compliance in not breaking out when the earthquake occurred uh, showed a reformation of character within themselves. So he suggests that they too founded the Philippian Ecclesia, or at least were a part of it during this time while it was growing. Well, after being freed from prison, we get to verse 40 of Acts 16, where it says that, they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So that was the establishment of the Philippian Ecclesia. Uh, the, the, the spirit broke them out of prison, and they went to the brethren and comforted them, and that's the founding and origin of the Ecclesia at Philippi. So that was the start of the Ecclesia, but when did Paul write to the Philippians? Well, he wrote this letter about 12 years later from when the Ecclesia was founded. So if the Jerusalem conference was in about AD 50, 
It is estimated that he wrote this letter to the Philippians in about AD 62. So where was Paul at this time where he was writing the letter to the Philippians? Well, he's actually in house arrest. Uh, Just flick back with me to Acts chapter 25. So Acts chapter 25, these are some of the complaints that the Jews brought against him, uh, against Paul. Uh, In verse 7 to 8, it says there, And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar have I offended anything at all. So this is much later on in Paul's ministry. The Jews accused Paul of many complaints, saying that he is a stirrer of trouble, saying that Paul is a ringleader. Paul is arrested, and after a series of trials, Paul appeals to Caesar, and he is shipped to Rome to state his case and to appeal the charges before Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. But while Paul is awaiting his trial by Caesar, he is in house arrest in Acts chapter 28 and verses 30 to 31. He's in house arrest for two years. For two years, Paul is imprisoned and under guard. And while Paul is under guard in his isolation, that is when he writes what we call the prison epistles. Now, all told, five New Testament records uh, or letters are said to have been written by Paul from, from um, prison. And they are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon. So Paul, during his isolation, keeps his connection with the Ecclesia and writes these letters to the Philippians, the Ecclesia he founded while he is in house arrest. He has allowed visitors to come and visit him, but he isn't allowed out of the house. Now, from what I've read, and it is debatable, depending on which um, historians you, record, you, you listen to, but if Paul isn't actually sent food and clothes, he doesn't get them. So he could be entirely dependent on ecclesial support right now, well, not right now, but when he was imprisoned, to keep him going and to sustain him and to provide him with his essentials. He's depending on the ecclesia at this time in isolation. And while in isolation, while he is locked in this house, awaiting his own fate, depending on others to bring him food and clothing and quills and parchment, he doesn't focus on himself. He writes letters to the ecclesias. Now, I've written a few talks uh, myself since I've been working from home and since being in lockdown, and I'd like to think that it's benefited the ecclesia uh, in some way or another, but in no way have I written epistles like, like Paul did in his time. And sure, I've had to work doing my nine to five, but I think the primary reason is because during times like this that Paul finds himself in, and somewhat like we have been in and as some of us still find ourselves in, our our thoughts aren't always on the ecclesia. When we're in isolation, more often than not, the focus is on ourselves, on us. And in times of isolation, when we lose our connection and relationship to others, our primary concern becomes about numero uno and making sure that we get through this, making sure our assets get through this. 
making sure our own family gets through this. And so while we're in isolation or house arrest in Paul's case, it's very easy to slip into the comfort of our own four walls. And so Paul's spiritual connection here is incredible. In a time when he has every reason to focus on himself, on preparing a case in his defense to Caesar, or asking the ecclesia for gift baskets to sustain him for the next couple of years or months, he writes to the ecclesias. And what would we do in this situation, brothers and sisters? When we were in our own house arrest, did we maintain our connection with our brothers and sisters? Or did we possibly let the ecclesia and ecclesial activities slip a little bit? Did our focus and attendance slide or take a back burner just for a moment while we make sure that we're okay? And unfortunately, it's the ecclesia and our faith that suffers for it. But Paul, during this time, decides that he'll pen a letter to the ecclesias and to Timothy, people that he knows and loves, to ensure their own well-being and ensure them of his. He starts his introduction with these words in verse 1 and 2 of Philippians chapter 1. He says, Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we stop there, because immediately in the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1, we see something that is unique to this book of Philippians. And that is that Paul specifically singles out in these verses the bishops and the deacons of the ecclesia, also known as the overseers and the ministers. We ask, well, so what? Why is that important? Well, it's hugely relevant because it is unique to this book of the Philippians. In no other letter that Paul has written does he note the elders or the overseers and ministers and commends them, and he doesn't do it in the introduction of any of his books. Paul singles out in his introduction the bishops and the deacons of the ecclesia and says, grace unto you and peace. And so if you turn to Colossians or Ephesians, Galatians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, Paul will wish the ecclesia in general grace and peace, but only here in Philippians does he wish it and specifically note the the elders and the leaders of the ecclesia. And I have no doubt that the first couple of verses are written with them in mind. Paul only really somewhat commends or respects, um, in a a way, the elders in one other ecclesia, and that is the ecclesia of Jerusalem. And even then, it's more of an assumption reading between the lines than actually stated. If we read in Acts 15 that when the question of the circumcision arises um, and comes up, Paul takes it to the elders that are at Jerusalem because he respects them and their decision, James and Peter and the other apostles that would have been with them at this time in the Jerusalem ecclesia. And if we remember at the start, I said to note in the back of your head that reference in Acts 16 that Paul passed on to the ecclesias the decrees from the elders of Jerusalem. Well, as we know in Acts 16, that that decree from the elders at Jerusalem led to Paul's preaching campaign. It led to his preaching trip and spread that decree, and that led to the establishment of the Philippian ecclesia. And it's almost this beautiful, ironic loop that the good leadership at the Jerusalem Ecclesia led to the good leadership at the Philippian Ecclesia. And it was that leadership that made the Philippian Ecclesia what it was, the overseers and the ministers. 
And brothers and sisters, the importance of the role that leaders of the ecclesia have and the guidance that they provide and the example they set cannot be overstated, especially in times of isolation. It is imperative that they fulfill the duties of maintaining the ecclesia's integrity and the connection with each other. And in Paul's absence and isolation, it was the elders of the Philippian ecclesia that stepped up. And I have no doubt that it was because of the elders in the, in the ecclesia that kept the Philippian ecclesia in the state that it was. When Paul writes this letter to them, those who oversaw and watched the ecclesia and those who ministered there, because they're specifically noted in verse 1 and not noted in any of his other epistles, and if those first verses were written with them in mind, and I don't doubt that they were, then it was the elders that kept their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, as it says in verse 5 of Philippians 1. They continued God's work, as Paul points out, points out to them in verse 6. And Paul commended the elders of the Ecclesia of Philippi for continuing that work in his absence. Well, what happens with a lack of leadership? Well, you get a letter similar to that of the Corinthian Ecclesia. You see, the elders in the Corinthian Ecclesia became complacent. They became idle. And during Paul's absence, people in the Ecclesia had their faith slipping. And there were issues coming up with drunkenness and immorality, false doctrines slipping in. Their integrity in Christ was slipping. And they weren't even the ones that were in isolation. They were gathering together still. And so without strong leaders there to guide the ecclesia through troubling, troubling times, through times of isolation or battling it on their own, to keep them on course and oversee the happenings in the ecclesia, it's so easy for people to slip away. 1 Peter 5 verse 1 to 3 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And so Peter exhorts the elders to feed the flock, to be an example to them. And he tells them to take the oversight of them, which means in the Greek to look upon and to care for, to inspect and the same word is used in Hebrews 12, verse 15, where it says to look diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness, bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled, which is exactly what happened in Corinth and in Galatia with troubling doctrine coming in and corrupting and no one looking diligently or caring for the ecclesia to weed it out. But we can take encouragement, brothers and sisters, from the leaders of the Philippian Ecclesia, who in the absence of Paul continued God's work with them and who provided them that guidance. Twelve years since Paul had departed from them, from when they were founded, they kept the consistency and the oversight of the Ecclesia. And we too should be following that example. When our Lord is absent uh, in body, it is up to the elders and the leaders to lead the ecclesia and to guide it, to maintain the course and not be idle and complacent and just wait for Christ's return, but to be diligently looking and to being an example. Because it's very easy for us to become complacent in isolation. 
It's very easy to slip into idleness and let our faith take a back seat for a while, to put everything on pause because it's too hard or inconvenient and it's comfy from the confines of our house. But I believe the thing that separated the Philippians from the other ecclesias was the care and oversight of their elders and the ministers. And so I just want to take a look at a couple of verses here uh, for a few minutes because I think that they are really relevant for us as well as being really relevant for the Philippian ecclesia back in the day. Back when Paul is writing this, some of the ecclesias had some issues with some people going back to the law. And despite being baptized into Christ, they left the new covenant to go back to the old or else thought that the law was still to be complied with even under Christ and under the new covenant. Essentially, they had some doctrinal issues. They didn't understand their position in Christ. Now, this wasn't the Philippian Ecclesia per se, but Paul almost nicely alludes to it and encourages them to be wary of it. And so Paul tells them in these verses in verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Well, why do they need to do that? Well, verse 10, That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, that's an interesting phrase that Paul uses in in verse 9. He tells them that their love is to abound more and more in knowledge and judgment. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is where a lot of churches today, dare I say, get it wrong. Because they see love and judgment as polar opposites. You can't judge someone if you love them, and you can't love someone if you judge them. But that's not true. And they're wrong, frankly. And these two verses in verse 9 have a really interesting meaning behind them. Sorry, these two words in verse 9 have a really interesting meaning behind them. If we flick across. So these are straight from Strong's. Knowledge in verse 9 is the Greek word epignosis, which means a precise and a correct knowledge. And judgment there is the Greek word esthesis, which means of moral discernment, in ethical matters. So Paul says, let your love abound more and more in precise and correct knowledge and in moral discernment. This agape love that they were to show, and that word agape, uh, that word love is agape, wasn't free range, sky's the limit, all about love. They were to show agape love to each other, absolutely, but within precise and correct knowledge and with moral discernment. Now, Christ was the epitome of this, the ultimate example. Because if we think of that woman that was caught in adultery, uh, what did Jesus say to her? Well, in John chapter 8, verse 11, Christ says to this woman, I don't condemn thee, go thou and sin no more. So Christ absolutely loved that woman, but he did not condone what she did. He didn't condemn her, But he also didn't tolerate that behavior. He told her to go and sin no more, but he still recognized it as a sin. But Christ still absolutely loved that woman. And so Paul tells the ecclesia here to continue in the love that they have, but be cautious over their doctrine. They needed precise and correct knowledge of their teachings. 
and also intellectual perception or emotional intelligence, as it's sometimes referred to, knowing when to apply which principles from the teachings of Christ. And what I love about these verses as well is that they become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy to those that don't read them carefully. Because if your love doesn't abound more and more in knowledge and in ill judgment, and you lose precise and correct knowledge, and you lose your moral discernment, do you know what you get? You get false doctrine. You get false teachings. And you apply wrong principles. And then soon your interpretation of the verse turns into something like this. It looks pretty familiar because it's pretty much what every church has posted on the front of their door nowadays. And what it preaches is that it's okay not to have exact and precise knowledge. And it's okay not to show any moral discernment. It's okay not to be doing the things that Christ and the Bible say exactly Because all that we should be doing is letting our love abound more and more. And whilst that's not entirely untrue, there is paradigms and context to what God and Paul say here. And so by not understanding this verse, you're almost condemned to fall into it. And brothers and sisters, particularly during these times when fact and fiction and truth and lies are so incredibly blurred... It is more important than ever that we hold fast to that integrity that Paul tells the Philippians to hold on to. The Bible isn't some archaic, outdated book past its relevance. It's not a book to take principles from and leave substance behind. Love and knowledge and judgment aren't mutually exclusive things. We absolutely need to have all three, agape love, precise knowledge and moral discernment. And we each have a responsibility to bear in fulfilling that verse. Bishops, the overseers of the ecclesia, the ABs and the elders, those with years of experience and knowledge, well, to them is aesthesis, to discern matters of ethics, to know the principle and the law and when to apply that wisdom. To the deacons or to those who minister or the servants of the truth, Well, a precise and correct knowledge is required. You are teaching the ecclesia. You are helping them focus on the emblems. You are providing them with the information that they will use to direct their life and make godly decisions. Your teachings become their law and knowledge to the ecclesia. So the ministers would need to show this precise and exact knowledge and they can bring that. And agape that love that is to abound more and more. Well, who is showing agape love? The undeserving grace within the guidance of knowledge and judgment. Well, that's the ecclesia. That's for us. That's for us to do as the ecclesia. And so the Philippian ecclesia had this amazing support of loving brethren and sisters with a good knowledge of the Bible and the moral discernment to guide and lead the ecclesia through those times, something that is truly something for us to look up to, and to strive for. And so continuing on, just backpedding a little bit, after his introduction and comments, he says in verse 3 to 5, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So from the first day until then, 
The Philippians had continued in the fellowship with Paul. If we scroll down a couple of verses, there's some other things that we want to pick out from this, uh, which is verses 12 to 14. It says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confidently confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul lets them know that what has happened to him, the imprisonment has helped to serve the gospel. And it seems like an unusual thing to throw in there that, Paul, you're locked up in house arrest, in isolation. Surely that's grounds, if any, that your gospel preaching messages can be paused for a little bit. You're unable to leave the house under arrest for your works in Christ. Surely people will understand if you think you've done your duty for the gospel. You've done your fair share of the work. So why put that in there? Why assure the Philippians that Paul being in jail is helping to serve the gospel? Well, firstly, news didn't travel as fast back then as it does now. The reasons behind why Paul was in prison perhaps aren't as well communicated and some people at the, Phil- uh, at the Philippian Ecclesia perhaps didn't realize the reasons why Paul was imprisoned in the first place. You see, the Ecclesia was there supporting him and encouraging him, sending him messages of support, and then suddenly news gets back to the Philippians that, hey, actually, Paul is in prison. Paul's actually been locked up. And whatever the conditions Imprisonment always brought this stigma of shame or dishonor or discredit. Well, what's Paul been locked up for? What did he do? And so it can cast smears on a person's reputation. And as we know, slandering and rumors were an issue. They still are today. And many took occasion from Paul being in prison to push their own agenda and used Paul in prison to discredit him and the work that he had done. And this is reflected in places like 2 Timothy 1, verse 16 to 17, where it says, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. So Onesiphorus is singled out for praise as one who was not ashamed of Paul's chains. And by implication, we can assume that there were many that were or many ecclesias that perhaps didn't want to support Paul or stick with him during his imprisonment. Maybe they didn't want to associate or be founded by a convict. Much more prestigious to have someone else as your founding father as an ecclesia. And so Paul writes to tell them that he is in prison because of his gospel and that him being in prison is helping to serve the gospel. And it makes sense the reason why he's doing this. If we go back to the context of how the Ecclesia started that we talked about earlier. Because the last time Paul was imprisoned, it was in Philippi, or that the Philippians saw. And the Philippians, the last time Paul was in jail with them, they see this amazing miracle of God. And we don't know how long Paul was in there, but I imagine that it wouldn't have been very long at all. But the last time they know and saw Paul locked up, they saw the power of God at work. And as a result of that miracle, this huge earthquake that occurred that broke Paul and Silas out of jail, 
all, and, and all these other prisoners as well, a whole family is converted and brought into the ecclesia. There was singing and prayers and a massive earthquake. And then afterwards, the keeper of the prison and his family were saved. And the prisoners that were in the jail with him were saved. And Paul came back to the ecclesia and he comforted them. And so this awesome expression of the power of God, it resulted in the advancement of the gospel. This new ecclesia was formed. All these new members joined. And so it makes sense then that when the Philippians hear of his imprisonment again, they think, well, surely this will be another sign from God. Surely there'll be some amazing sign that furthers the advancement of the gospel. Surely this will be the return of Christ. Surely the ecclesia in Rome is about to grow and we'll see the gospel preached as a result of this imprisonment right under Caesar's nose. But slowly the time goes past. And days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months, and the months turn into years, and two years go past, and there's no signs, and there's no earthquakes, there's no breakouts, there's no Paul returning to the Philippian Ecclesia to comfort them. And so we could understand why the Philippians might be thinking that this imprisonment is somehow different that they would be demoralized, that they would abandon Paul. Maybe this time it isn't for the advancement of the gospel or this isolation wasn't part of God's plan. And so Paul writes them this letter of assurance that even though he is still locked in prison, it is for the advancement of the gospel. He tells them this in verse 12 of the Philippians, that I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it might become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he is spreading the gospel even in his imprisonment. And you can bet that Paul is preaching to every single guard that is in there. Anyone that asks him the question, what are you in for? They are getting more than their fair share of an answer from Paul. Chapter 4 of Philippians, we actually read that Caesar's household salutes the Philippian ecclesia, and so surely some of them in that house were baptized and will be saved. Now, there's two lessons for us in there. Firstly, that when life is exciting and good times are happening, it's very easy to stick with the brethren and sisters then, isn't it? When times are prosperous and we're well off, it's easy to give back to the brotherhood then. When more people are joining the Ecclesia and we have the opportunity to see and to be with each other, we're very loyal attendees. But how easy is it to do when the times are against us? Or how well do we support those in need when we or they are in troubled times? Do our food packages ease up or our visits to them decline or our prayers for them cease? Do our contributions to the collections lessen or become less frequent or our attendance at the meeting start to become more infrequent? How strong is our faith in our brothers and sisters and our love for them that we stick with them in the hard times when it is either hard for us or hard for them or hard for the ecclesia? Paul said to the Philippians that he thanks God for them 
as they have been with him from the first day till now, in verse 5. Two years of his house arrest and the ecclesia was still supporting him and praying for him. Imagine keeping someone in your thoughts and prayers for two years. And the second lesson that we want to pull out from these verses is this. That our limited circumstances do not limit God. Our isolation does not limit God. And when we look at our circumstances and our situations and we think, well, I guess I can't do any more. I guess this is how it is. I guess our preaching efforts or our fellowship or our gatherings are limited because we're unable to do it. God isn't hindered by that. And Paul shows them that even in his isolation, even while he is under house arrest, it doesn't stop his love and his care for the ecclesia. It didn't stop his preaching. They continued in love and support for Paul just as he did for them. And with that came the blessings of God on the ecclesia and on Paul and his efforts. Paul turns this time of house arrest, which should have been a warrant for humiliation, to his own advantage, that he will not be put to shame. He didn't let something small like house arrest stop his love and care for them. His personal humiliation resulted in the exaltation of Christ. And Paul's letter to Timothy reaffirms this. He says in 2 Timothy 2 verse 9 that even though Paul is chained, the word of God is not. And so continue in your efforts. Don't be short-sighted by our circumstances. We shouldn't be complacent because of our situation. God isn't stopped or prohibited by our limitations. So let's not fall into the mindset that he is or that our efforts should cease or slow because of them. And so Paul reassures the Philippians of his own well-being and reassures them of the gospel efforts well-being, that it is still being preached and that people are being converted despite being locked under house arrest. Paul is still able to continue his ministry and maintain his own faith in times like that. Well, just look at verse 21. It says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's an interesting expression by Paul. And what does he mean by that? Well, he continues to explain in verses 22 to 24. He says, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul is between a rock and a hard place. To depart and be with Christ or to stay and help the ecclesia. And this attitude that Paul has is absolutely incredible. In fact, we probably can't even believe Paul's attitude there. Paul's entire purpose of being, his entire purpose in life, the one thing keeping Paul alive and tied to this earth is to ensure the ecclesia's well-being. It's not necessarily something that he wants to do. What he wants to do is to depart and be with Christ, which he sees as being the far better thing in this life. And it's almost ironic to Paul or I should say that to Paul, the best thing this life can offer him is for it to depart so that he can be with Christ. And Paul says, well, I can either depart and be with Christ, which is better, 
or I can stay here and further the gospel message and help the ecclesia. And so this is what he means in verse 20 when he says, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whatever happens to him, if he lives, it's for Christ. If he dies, it's for Christ. But either way, it is for Christ and Christ is preached. So if to die is better, why does Paul stick around? It's for them. It's for the ecclesia. It's for their progress and joy. And it's funny that Paul is the one that's locked up. Paul is the one that's in house arrest. The Philippian ecclesia is doing well at this stage. They're in Christ. They're free. And yet Paul says, even locked up in isolation, I'm helping you. The one purpose Paul has in life, the one thing keeping him alive is the furtherance of the gospel and helping the ecclesia. Brothers and sisters, when we were locked up and in isolation, how excited were we to see the ecclesia again? When times are tough and we're going through hardship, how many of us look to ensure the well-being of the ecclesia before our own self? Do we have this attitude of Paul that to die is gain because we get to see Christ? But to live means that I get to ensure my brothers and sisters' joy and progress in the gospel. What reason did we come here this morning? Was it for the same reason that Paul would be here? Because if we don't have this attitude of whether I live or die, it's for Christ, what is inhibiting us from having that? And what is keeping us back? What is the focus of our days? Because in these sentiments of Paul, we see that effectively and arguably, the only reason he's alive, otherwise he would happily die, is to remain and continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. So were we looking back to coming to the ecclesia again? Were we excited to be here so that we could further each other's progress and joy in the faith? Or do things like work and travel and luxuries and comforts give us our reason to live? And so as we draw this session to a close this morning, let's remember the lessons from Paul and the Philippians. That good leadership and guidance are examples, uh, are necessary from the elders that separated the ecclesias of Jerusalem and Philippi from others like Galatia and Corinth. And that we as an ecclesia should show our agape love to each other. Let's remember to stick with our brethren and sisters in good times and bad because it's easy to do it during the good times, but often we put our walls up and tend to only look inwardly during the bad times. Let's remember that our situation and circumstances don't limit God. He isn't affected by our limitations, and so we shouldn't use our circumstances as excuses or reasons why we can't or shouldn't do things to further the progress of the truth and the ecclesia. And finally, do we have this attitude of Paul to make the ecclesia and manifestation of Christ our reason for living, to be excited to see the brothers and sisters again and look forward to it? Let's think on these things. Thank you.